This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Hello, this is Tobias for Software Engineering Radio. In this episode, I am talking to the CTO and founder of Lucidworks, Grant Ingersoll. As you know from earlier episodes, he is connected to Apache projects like Lucene, Solar and Mahout. Together with Thomas Morton and Andrew Ferris, Grant wrote a book entitled Taming Text, How to Find, Organize and Manipulate It. And almost one year after being published, I will talk with him about the book and its influence on the community on this show. Grant, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here again. I think you have heard of the Turing test being passed in June 2014. And for our listeners, um, there was this guy called Eugene Gustman who passed the Turing test, who was just chatting around with people from all over the world. But in the end, it was a chatbot and not a real person. And so that was kind of the, the, the core of the Turing test. And I think you should have been partying after hearing this. Or what were your thoughts? What were your reactions on this Turing test? Yeah, no, that's uh, <laughs> interesting. I should have been partying. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's obviously a great advancement. And I think it speaks to, uh, you know, a lot of the effort that has been going into artificial intelligence, machine learning, natural language processing, uh, you know, a lot of the things obviously I'm trying to cover in my book. Uh, I don't think the stuff in the book, you know, quite passes the Turing test yet, but I do think it kind of lays the foundation for a lot of those things. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a, it's a great advancement. Obviously there's, I think still a long ways to go in terms of, you know, being general purpose enough to handle all language in all situations, but it's really a good step in the right direction. Were there any uh, products you are involved in um, part of the solution? Do you know any um, particular stuff there? Uh, no, I'm not actually familiar at the low level with what they did. So, uh, but I would imagine it's you know a good chunk of open source along with some of their own uh, uh, mixed in kind of things. So, yeah, let's hope it gets back to the open source community then, so everyone can um, learn from it and and use the libraries. But then let's get to the the, the core meaning of this show, which is talking about your book, um, Taming Text. Which, is, which has been released at the end of last year, if I'm correct. And I know that you are actually working on a second version right now. Is that correct or is it wrong by now? I know we are uh, slowly working on a second version. Uh, you know, as you listeners of this show may know, I'm also involved in a startup. So uh, as always, writing a book is a... Uh, Uh, long and laborious process, but yeah, we are uh, writing a second edition. Although you know the the first edition continues to do well and continue to get good feedback there, and I think uh, while some of the examples are uh, could be are going to be updated, you know the core concepts are still uh, really solid in in the in the first edition. 
Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll be going back to this um, in a couple of minutes. Before that, I'd like to ask you, um, why did you actually write the book? What was the reason? Why did you get to the topic uh, of, of taming text, of processing text, and to writing a book about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there's actually, I, I think, kind of two levels. Uh, one, it, it's the book I wish I had when I started, uh, or at least it's an attempt at the book I wish I had when I started, which is, you know, my, my target audience and our target audience with uh, Taming Text was really developers who, you know, that you're a good programmer, but aren't necessarily familiar with search and natural language processing and programming. Uh, and so you wanted something that could help you get going on the examples, the concepts, the ideas, uh, also leveraging a lot of the strong open source capabilities out there. And really, to be honest, without the, you know, the math and the kind of the dense academic rigor that a lot of the books in this field have, because frankly, I think a lot of engineers simply don't have time to dig into all the formulas because, let's face it, they've got uh, problems they want to solve, and, and so they want realistic ways to get those done, not necessarily worried at first about the theory behind it. They would rather go and explore it. Uh, second, you know, it was just uh, thinking the second area kind of is, is obviously a bit more personal, but, you know, career-wise, I was looking for something to help. Uh, you know, helped me along on, on my career. And frankly, I think having a book, uh, writing a book can be something that can help boost your career and your standing in the community and things like that. And so, uh, you know, it's definitely been very helpful for my career as well. But a big effort, I think, to, to boost your career, since I think I, I couldn't manage to write a book about anything in the end. Yeah, no, I mean, you'd be surprised. Uh, you know, first off, there's a real thirst for technical books. Uh, you know, I think the publishers or technical books are always looking for authors. So it is it is definitely a labor of love, as they say. It's not something that you make money off of directly, although, you know, I mean, obviously I have received some royalties for it. Uh, but, you know, it's not like you're writing the, you know, the great American novel or, you know, the, the next New York Times bestseller here. Um, and so you very much have to go into it as this is something I, I love to do or I want to do. And then, uh, you know, you've, you, it is hard. You've got to put in a lot of time into it and you've got to figure out how to speak to, uh, users in a way that they're readers in a way that they're going to understand. Um, you know, I don't, you know, obviously the, the public can judge that. I think we did a good job at it, but you know, ultimately other people are the judge of that. Yes, for sure. Um, based on the feedback, um, what are your listeners actually working on? Um, or to put it in another phrase, um, why are they um, buying your book and reading it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the you know, as I mentioned, I think the readers are definitely engineers. They're often Java programmers. Uh, they're off, they're, they're getting started in this field. Uh, you know, I see this time and time again at LucidWorks, my company, where we go into an organization, we're helping them with a lot of these issues like search machine learning, natural language processing. There's usually one or two people there, often the boss or a PhD or, or somebody who's really experienced in the field who knows search and all of that. And then they've got a bunch of other engineers who are good, strong programmers, but just getting started with these particular kinds of problems. And so they're, you know, they're buying it because it helps them get up that learning curve. 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is not the, it is not a book for experts. It's very much a book for beginners uh, or, or mid-level uh, people or people who want to have deeper knowledge on some of the open source libraries that we cover. And so I think a lot of the feedback we get is along those lines. Hey, great book for helping me get started. <clears throat> Meanwhile, you know, the experts are saying, yeah, you know, I already knew that, which is which is fine. That that tells me we hit our tar- target audience uh, right on. That's good. Do you also hear um, phrases like, well, we will buy a Google Blade and that's it for us. And what what, what are your thoughts on, about that? So like the Google search appliance? Yes. You mean? Uh, you know, I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Uh, obviously, I think that's much more of a black box situation. It's, you know, really set up and designed for kind of low-end search around, uh, you know, your corporate intranet. Uh, what, you know, we see time and time again, the reason why people are selecting technologies like Solar and Lucene and, and Open NLP and Mahout and others is they have a problem that's much harder to solve. Uh, they have a problem that they want to have control over. They want to know how the inner workings uh, happen. They want to be able to control those inner workings, alter those inner workings. Um, they also want to be able to more effectively monetize or uh, more efficiently deal with their data. Uh, so, you know, a black box doesn't do that for you. Whereas when you've got open source, it's the, you know, essentially the ultimate white box, right? And so I can dig in if I need to, but I don't have to. Uh, and so, you know, it, it really helps them solve much harder problems that I, I don't think you can with just a black box type approach. Can you give at least one example um, of these this kind of um, problems they want to solve, which is not j- simply searching your internet or other uh, easy data files or whatever? You know, I think uh, there's lots of great examples out there. E-commerce is probably one of the strongest ones where, uh, you know, there are so many signals coming in from your users, your buyers, the general web, public, all of that kind of stuff that you want to then incorporate into the way you return search results. So, you know, if somebody comes in and searches for TVs, you want to be able to rank those results according to lots of different criteria that goes well beyond just, hey, does the word TV match? I remember uh, a few years back, one of our uh, customers who was on public re- uh, record was Sheet Music Plus. You know, they're, I think, one of the world's largest purveyors of, uh, you know, sheet music ranging from, you know, modern rock and roll all the way back to Beethoven, Bach, etc. And when one of their top queries against their uh, search index was simply the word piano. Now, you, you tell me, what should I return for search results when somebody types in the word piano? It's usually quite straightforward if they type in, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and whatever, uh, you know, for harpsichord or whatever it is, right? But if somebody just types in piano, what should I return? And so what companies like that want to be able to do is leverage all of these different factors, these, these features, signals, if you will, that help them figure out what they should return. Because in fact, 
users time and time again are telling them what they want to see when they search for a piano. They want to see the most popular piano items. Maybe the company wants to overlay in that the items that they make the most money on, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of those things factor in to an overall ranking that uh, they want to be able to control and manipulate so that they can ultimately keep their users happy as well as obviously uh, increase their profits. Yes, understood. Getting back to your book, Taming Text, what tools do you use to tame text in the book and maybe in your real life as well? And why are you choosing exactly those tools? I think the tools people are using, you know, first off, the book is really geared towards Each chapter presents a concept like search or named entity recognition or clustering and, and lays out the concepts behind those in, a, in layman's terms or engineering terms at, at, at least. And then we go into an example of some open source that helps solve those problems. So for search, we use Lucene and Solar. For clustering and, and some uh, classification problems, we use Mahout and a few other libraries. Uh, for things like string matching, we actually roll some of our own examples. Um, but, you know, primarily speaking there, uh, we chose open source libraries that have commercially friendly licenses like the Apache license or the BSD license, things like that. Uh, and they also just happen to be projects that we think are pretty popular and also projects we're intimately familiar with. So, you know, Lucene Solar, Mahout, OpenNLP, Uh, and then a few others uh, coming on in the in the new version, the second version will will also be added in there as well. So you know, I, I tend to use in my day to day job a lot of Lucene and Solar. Uh, I also use a variety of open source natural language processing tools, and then you know supplement that with stuff that we build ourselves. Your book elaborates a lot about search engines and their use and um, how to adjust them. And so I'd like to ask you the question, how do those search engines actually judge or adjust the quality of their results? Is there a difference between multi-purpose search engines and single-purpose search engines? And are there some different approaches in there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, obviously, I can't speak to, uh, you know, how Google or some of the large engines, you know, they don't reveal all of their secret sauce. But, you know, generally speaking, the way, uh, you know, there's a couple of different approaches to determining whether a document is relevant or not. And then, of course, once you determine if something's relevant or not, then it's just simply a matter of taking that score and sorting by that such that you return out a ranked list of results. Uh, you know, the main two ways, one is a, a probabilistic way, which is essentially saying what is the probability that this document answers this query? And there's other, you, you can actually flip that on its head and say what is the probability uh, that this query matches this document? And so there's, there's different approaches to that. Uh, and there's a couple of different open source engines out there that support those, including Lucene. The other one, and, and often the, the more commonly implemented one, is what's called the vector space model. Uh, and if you think back to your high school Uh, mathematics classes, you can essentially think of the vector space models. You've got uh, a vector representing the document in an n-dimensional space, and then you've got a vector representing the query 
in that same n-dimensional space. If you put their tails together, that forms an angle. If you take the cosine of that angle, you get a score between minus one and one. Uh, and so if, if you remember your math again correctly, uh, when the angle is zero, the cosine is one. And so intuitively speaking, you would think that since those two, you, those two vectors are exactly the same, they should be a very high match. In reality, you know, we take that model and modify it. We add Boolean logic on top of it. We add a lots of other scoring factors that you can bring into play to essentially help you do that ranking. And then what, you know, is often done is you have uh, – you have data sets that you quote unquote practice against that allows you to determine whether your rankings are good enough or not. And then you may actually have rules that you overlay on top of that too. And, you know, big companies like Google and the like, I mean, they have hundreds, if not thousands of people who work on and manipulate those rankings, uh, you know, throughout the day, throughout the year, such that they're, you know, trying to improve that user feedback loop, if you will. So they are actually um, doing some sort of A-B tests here and say, okay, this and that changed and this is a good um, good result or a bad result or in, uh, how, how are they actually doing it? Yeah, actually A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way <laughs> okay. through uh, uh, Z. You know, I mean, I think from what I've seen and understand, uh, the large majority of users in internet search engines are in an experiment at any given point in time. And so actually, you know, a small percentage in, in I don't know what the exact numbers are here. I've heard, you know, that it's roughly 10% of users see the what is considered to be the best version of that internet search engine at any given point in time and everybody else is in a is in an experiment and those experiments may be anything ranging from changing the color of you know an icon to changing the font to changing the actual scoring algorithm and so they're constantly looking for ways to tweak the search results. And, you know, ultimately they're, you know, looking for ways to balance and increase, well, increase the amount of ads clicked uh, relative to the results that they're displaying, right? So obviously they have different goals than just necessarily providing you with the absolute best results that answer your question. They also want to make sure you're, uh, they want to increase the likelihood that you're, uh, going to click on an ad as well, right? So, you know, there's lots of things that go into to calculating that. But yeah, at the end of the day, we're all in it. We're all in a big experiment. All right. And how important is the actual position or rank of an item within the result set? And is there a difference between general purpose search engines like Google or Bing and special systems for a certain user group, for instance, scientists or so? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I cover this a fair bit in the search chapter of the book, but I mean, I think it, it really, the answer is it depends, not to cop out, but, uh, you know, there's been a lot of academic study of this, and I think at the end of the day, it, it depends on the user and what the user is expecting. Uh, I think often the reason why search engines fail is they fail to capture what uh, what a user really wants or needs. Uh, and so, you know, that is... That, that understanding comes from thinking about what your, who your user is, right? So if, if I'm, you know, Joe Consumer on the internet and I'm just looking for, 
you know, a TV or something like that, then, you know, they're, they're, if they just put in a generic term, then, you know, they're probably not going to be too upset if the TV they actually end up buying is in the fifth slot as opposed to the first slot, or even perhaps on the second page, although that's not as likely. Um, but if they put in a very specific kind of TV, you know, with very specific attributes, you know, they want a 57 inch Sony, whatever, whatever, with, you know, 3D hologram projections, right? And that one, they know it exists and it doesn't come up, then they're going to be upset, right? Uh, and, and perhaps go look elsewhere. Similarly, if you're, uh, you know, working for uh, a competitive intelligence situation, or if you're trying to find terrorists or other bad guys, uh, you know, your criteria for the results is often very different because you're obviously invested very uh, deeply in making sure you find that needle in the haystack. So you're often willing to read a lot more results. You're often willing to spend a lot more time adjusting your queries and, and uh, tinkering with the way you look at the results so that you can try to find that, you know, proverbial needle in a haystack that, you know, helps you catch the bad guy or prevent something bad from happening, right? Yeah. And just just because I'm a bit related to it and things like um, e-discovery, it's kind of the same. You're just not allowed to have something being lost. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like e-discovery or legal situations, like if you if you hand over a bunch of emails that you didn't know talked about, you know, a company doing something bad, and then you hand that over to the prosecution or the other side, uh, you know, that's the that's the smoking gun, right? And so then you're you're going to be in big trouble. That's right. Yeah, you won't. You don't want to do this. Kids need to learn to understand texts while growing up and machines too, of course. But is it the goal to actually preserve the computer state of mind or to enable every machine to build up the database and learn again? So, or is there something in between? Well, I mean, I think if, if the computer is learning a model, um, you, you certainly would behoove you to not forget the model unless you decide that that model is just not a very good one. Um, so, you know, there are systems that kind of take a genetic or an evolutionary approach to learning. Uh, and so they throw away old models that aren't deemed as good as newer models. But, uh, you know, that's still different. You know, they'll, they'll still keep the model they have, uh, you know, that, you know, if they were to shut down or restart, they would still have that model preserved. Um, you know, there's also obviously you know, kind of the bootstrapping problem one would face when going into a new environment. So, you know, if if the machine, if you've trained it on a, a certain model and then you've deployed it into a situation where it, it's capable of learning, but, you know, that original model is not very good, you obviously would end up, you know, either right away or as, as you learn more, throw out that older model or at least adapt that model. Um, but I'm not as familiar with ones that, you know, just lose their, you know, in memory state, uh, and then have to rebootstrap themselves the next time they come up. I mean, that, uh, that doesn't strike me as necessarily a good approach, but maybe I'm missing something there. 
Okay, uh, it might be because I'm thinking of um, uh, systems that replicate themselves and just have a small amount of data but need to actually be precise in their results. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the benefits of, you know, I mean, if you, especially if you're comparing it to people, right? I mean, uh, in theory, the replication of knowledge on a computer is, you know, significantly faster than it is in the human race, right? Uh, you know, I mean, I think it takes us years and years to learn, uh, you know, for kids to, to become uh, on par in intelligence with adults, right? Whereas, you know, presumably once a computer has learned something, if, if it truly is learning uh, in the same sense, you know, we can then clone it quite quickly because it's all digital and electronic. Um, you know, I mean, I think perhaps what you're getting at too is a lot of times, you know, you're, you're obviously, you're building a model, right? And so that model is a, a representation of the raw data or the data that it's seen so far. And so that model often ends up being obviously a lot smaller than the original data. And so then, you know, we can go and replicate that model across lots of machines, Right. And so in some regards there, you're, each machine has a, a base starting model that it can come from. And then it, it learns new based off of what it sees. Right. And then, the, you know, sometimes you'll have algorithms that actually sync them back up and figure out which one's the most, you know, the most efficient one. And that's kind of where that evolutionary approach I talked about earlier can come in. Um, so, you know, and then there's also, you know, a lot of work being done these days on what's quote unquote called deep learning. Uh, and so, you know, that can also be, that's all about just bootstrapping from very little training, if you will, just bootstrapping from, you know, what it sees and, and trying to figure out the relationships without actually having somebody tell it what the relationships are. Getting into some more advanced and maybe real life aspects of, um, in inverted commas, taming text now, um, I'd like to uh, get to some chapters of your book. The first one is fuzzy string matching. Um, what is fuzzy string matching and why is this important for our day-to-day -day, uh, search life? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, this is actually one of the chapters we debated as to whether, you know, quite heavily debated as whether it belonged in the book or not. And ultimately, obviously, we decided it did. Uh, I think, you know, string matching, you know, just straight up matching, you know, two words that are equal or not is obviously pretty well understood and, and is a rather simple function on, you know, in Java, like a, a string object or in C or whatever, right? Um, and that's all well and good for when you have exact matches. But as, as we all know, uh, the world is not exact. And so there's often fuzziness. People misspell things. People uh, make all kinds of errors. You have problems like uh, if you're scanning in image, you know, documents, and then you do OCR, the OCR process can be Uh, noisy. And so there's just all these places and times where text is fuzzy, for lack of a better word. Like we just don't know whether it exactly matches. And so we need algorithms that help us uh, deal with that situation, right? And so that particular chapter helps users understand different algorithms for calculating how similar individual words are, individual strings are, and then using those judgments to then, you know, kind of seed 
the rest of the the techniques in the book, right? So if you know, you know, if you say, for instance, you're dealing with uh, a certain kinds of users who always misspell uh, your last name or misspell the name of your product, uh, you know, for instance, a uh, classic one in, in is that people spell iPod, like they'll spell it I space pod, they'll spell it I dash pod, spell it I capital P O D, et cetera, et cetera. And so at the end of the day, you know, you still want to match what they're after, which is the actual iPod. And so you need some of these techniques to help you deal with those situations. And really, it's it's then the feeds into something like a search engine or your your NLP system, et cetera, as kind of a a baseline of pre-processing. Um, but you know, in in that chapter, we also talk about how how to give users things like auto suggest features. You know, so if you start typing in uh, a word, it will help you auto complete that. That's a way of helping guide your users to good content that they you you know exists and will be helpful to them as opposed to just letting them put in a mistyped word and then wondering why the results aren't any good. But when I am thinking of using fuzzy string matching on single-purpose search engines, like those scientific research databases, I would expect the results to be sometimes weird or even wrong, especially if the system thinks I spelled this term wrong, but I actually didn't. How do you deal with those situations? Do these algorithms enable establishing feedback channels or other ways of adjusting the result set? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And 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 you, you're definitely right on. I mean, I think, you know, this is why it's called fuzzy string matching, right? Is there's inherently a score or a probability here that says, here's the degree to which we think this is correct. And uh, I you know I always kind of have this saying there's a, there's a reason why the saying is the numbers don't lie not the text doesn't lie because text lies all the time and users lie all the time not lie in necessarily a malicious way but lie in the sense that they don't know how to spell or maybe they do know how to spell but you you don't know how to spell right or your your algorithm doesn't know how to spell or your data doesn't know how to spell and so you always have this fuzziness factor going on in pretty much everything you do in this space, right? whether it's search or machine learning, natural language processing, it's all essentially about coming up with a score, uh, you know, a degree of, of likelihood or a deg degree of relevance. And so I think the best systems are able to incorporate how users interact with that fuzziness in a way that helps them ultimately get to their answer, even if the any individual answer is not correct. Right. So if, if an engine just says, oh, here's your answer and the user looks at it and says, uh, sorry, no, it's not, then, you know, that that application has failed. But if, if the application says, you know, here's what we think is your answer, but, you know, perhaps here's some other suggestions or here's some ways that you might refine your your question, uh, that usually is more successful. And of course, things like autocomplete also help preempt that so that the user can see right off the bat as they're typing and then adjust on the fly so that they, you know, they get to the, what they're looking for faster. Uh, because like I said, at the end of the day, it's all, uh, it's all up to that user to decide what's, what's relevant and what's not. If we go to the actually next chapter in your book after fuzzy string matching, I think there might be a connection between the two since it is called identifying people, places and things. 
I think that sometimes the two topics, fuzzy string matching and finding entities, can be in contrary to each other, because entity names tend to not look like the system thinks they should, don't they? Yeah, I mean, you know, so with the, this chapter, it's all about, you know, identifying people, places, currencies, uh, you know, the things that I think we all inherently do or learn, you know, when we learn, uh, you know, our, our native language or learn a language, right? You, you recognize the patterns that say, you know, this is Tobias Katz or this is IEEE or this is Lucidworks, right? You know, the indicators that lead to that. Um, you know, I mean, I think the challenge here again is, is how do I help find those things? Because, you know, let's face it, like proper nouns and the like are often very useful for us as humans in understanding what uh, a particular document is about. So if we know it mentions people or places or things, there's that familiarity with it and there's that reasoning that we can do about it. Uh, and so I think it becomes really important to have tools that help you do those kinds of things. And obviously, uh, you know, the, the fuzziness here is, is often with the fact that, you know, let's face it, the most of us, uh, you know, are, are never mentioned in public content. So the odds of a, a computer uh, or a, a learning model, you know, a learning system ever seen a particular mention of a person's name, you know, especially if it's a non or, or, or a less common spelling is pretty low, right? You know, it's one thing to get Beyonce correct. It's another thing to get, you know, you know, Joe Smith or, you know, whatever his name is who lives, you know, down the street from you and, and you can never pronounce his name. Right. So, uh, yeah, so there is an inherent, uh, again, fuzziness there, but thankfully the, you know, the, Languages do have some structure to them, and despite the fact that everybody calls it unstructured content, I think language is actually one of the most structured. It's just that we're not very good at teaching computers how to deal with that structure. And so we're, we're often stuck, again, like you said, with, with these fuzzy states that we're in of, yeah, I think this is a, a proper name, but I'm not 100% certain, right? Yeah. And but um, going through your book, I, I still think that from this chapter on, uh, you are talking about the more important but um, harder um, problems and challenges you have in actually understanding real text. It's not that you just understand a word and can say, okay, this is a proper noun or whatever in a sentence in in the biggest um, yeah. realm you now want to uh, get things in, in in context and want to um, get, find out which is a pl what entity is a place and and how this relates to the rest of the text so how do you face those challenges now now that you can't really go to one world uh, word and, and and tell what actually role it, it plays in a sentence Yeah, no, that's uh, that's definitely the challenge here. And this, I mean, frankly, this is what I love about this space and why it's so interesting and exciting because because it is hard. Uh, you know, the book. I think we definitely progress through. Uh, you know, more or less how you know things get harder as we go through the book. You know, ultimately, uh, you know, the the second to last chapter is about actually building a, a fact based question answering system. 
uh, you know, what you could kind of think of as a really lightweight version of IBM Watson or Google Now or Siri kind of functionality. And then, you know, the last chapter actually is, hey, here's all the really hard stuff that, you know, you could write a whole book on just those things as well. And and we kind of left that as, as, you know, the sky's really the limit here when it comes to exploring these. I mean, I think we're seeing all the time systems are getting better and better at this. Um, but there's still just a long way to go. And, you know, like I said, this is, this is where it gets really fun, right? Because, you know, ultimately if you're not working on hard problems, uh, you know, you're probably not going to be working very long, <laughs> at least not in that field. Right. Well, and, and kind of the lower level functions are, are pretty well understood in terms of, you know, an individual word, but you know, there's still even problems there. You've got things like character encodings, et cetera. But once we start moving up the the stack there, if you will, to the semantic layer and the discourse layer and some of these higher levels of language where, you know, there's, there's a lot that's not said in a particular document or the way a user speaks that is either common knowledge or maybe is delivered uh, sarcastically. Uh, so on paper or in a you know electronic form, that sarcasm doesn't necessarily come across, and so you know those present really hard challenges for us uh, as people trying to write computer programs that understand this kind of stuff. That's right, but still um, really challenging for me to actually think about having things like QA machines or whatever. That's so so cool to see what comes out of it right now. Right. And, and, you know, and if you think about it as we're still uh, kind of in its infancy, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, QA is where people, what people mostly want, you know, instead of having to cipher, you know, sift through uh, 10 blue links and that kind of stuff, they want, you know, when they ask a question, they want what they think is an answer. But, you know, that answer can be uh, quite complex, right? You know, it's one thing to say, who is the president of the United States right now, you know, and answer that. It's another thing to ask the question, you know, what are the reasons for the war in fill in the blank country, right? And and to be able to ask that kind of question of a computer is really interesting as well. And it's also just frankly really hard to get back, uh, you know, a, a cogent answer there because, you know, it involves so many complex ideas and, and different opinions and all of those things. And ultimately, you know, that's what we as humans want to be able to do as well. But, you know, let's face it, we can't get through all of the data there is to, to be able to always know the right answer. What do you think um, IBM Watson, Siri, Google Now, uh, you name it, uh, is this approach scalable? So do you think that uh, those engines will get better and better and better? Or do you think that we need to have a s switch in... Um, in technologies or switching approaches to actually face the real challenges? Um, no, I mean, I think you see them getting better all the time. I mean, this is that whole collective intelligence uh, approach to dealing with this kind of data, which is, you know, again, we're making, uh, you know, educated guesses, if you will, based off of what other similar people did. Right. And so and then trying to overlay some personalization on it. I mean, I think they're great examples of uh, the state of the art these days and, and they are getting better and will continue to be there will continue to be a lot of investment in those kinds of systems, because, uh, you know, ultimately, I think what we are looking for is is tools and approaches and, and things like that that complement us. 
uh, and take take away the mundane tasks from us so that we can focus on the harder challenges, uh, et cetera. And, and, you know, ultimately, you know, make our lives easier, better, safer, uh, more efficient, whatever, you know, whatever kind of your personal goals are. So, yeah, I think you're going to see uh, continued evolution there. Uh, I don't know if it's really hard to predict revolution. So it may be the case that there will be one, you know, 10 years ago, I think, you know, Siri probably or Google now or Watson was, uh, really hard to ob- obtain those kinds of results. Whereas now it's, you know, much more practical. Yeah, definitely. Did you actually work on a system like that or, or on QA systems? How did they look like and what problem did they solve? Yeah, so I worked on, uh, back when I was at the Center for Natural Language Processing, we worked on a couple of different QA systems. I also worked on things like cross-language information retrieval and, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, the book, uh, the last example in there is a fairly basic QA system. It does reasonably well when you give it a good set of facts and, and, you know, it pretty much is only targeted towards answering those facts. There's actually a lot of improvements that can be made to that. Uh, if you read like the Watson paper, uh, you know, a lot of the core foundation of what they're doing is, is the similar to the approach that we're doing. Obviously they're doing it at a much bigger scale and with a lot more data and, and more sophisticated algorithms, but the core of it, of, of taking a user's query, trying to figure out what that query is about, right? You know, what that question is about. Is it looking for a person? Is it looking for a place? Is it looking for uh, some particular answer type? classifying so classifying that question into an answer type and then using that to go do a search and in fact IBM Watson actually uses Lucene underneath the hood to do that initial passage retrieval so that gives you a candidate set of documents that you know the computer says hey I think one of these documents is going to answer this question and then essentially doing that post uh, you know taking those passages and scoring them uh, according to the likelihood and kind of parsing parsing those windows or those passages apart into into an answer is what is happening underneath the hood in Watson. Obviously, again, more sophisticated than what we do in the book, but in the book we provide a, a pretty simplistic approach to doing that, which works reasonably well. And then, you know, you can immediately see all kinds of ways that you can improve it. So, um, you know, I think then, you know, one of the keys is taking that and having kind of feedback mechanisms built in such that you can learn as you go from, you know, what what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and if you, if you look at the history of how Watson was developed and how Siri and Google now, they're constantly having those iterations of, hey, yes, the user liked this. No, the user didn't like this. Right. And so that that feedback loop is critical. And actually, you know, to tie it back into your earlier question about how we learn. It's very similar, right? We get feedback from our parents, from our teachers, from books, from, you know, whatever it is that, you know, dispel or reinforce particular ideas and behaviors. But then what what is the difference between simply learning and artificial intelligence like computers that think in inverted commas for themselves? That's a great question. I mean, I, you know, I think obviously the Turing test is one example there, which we talked about earlier. Um, 
you know, uh, it's probably more of a philosophical discussion over beers as to whether a computer ever can, uh, you know, think or, or behave, um, you know, and, and be human, if you will, uh, if that's the ultimate goal, which, uh, you know, I would, I personally don't care whether it is or not. I mean, I think it'd be interesting, but, um, you know, to me, I want, uh, systems that help complement, like I said earlier, what, what we're doing. Um, you know, like I said, as, as far as whether there's true artificial intelligence someday or not, uh, you know, I guess that remains to be seen. My bet is that there will be, but you know, I don't, uh, I don't know when or where or how. Although we have touched it a bit before, I would like to again discuss the last chapter of your book. One topic that stood out for me was understanding the meaning of bigger texts. Here you use the term discourse a lot. Could you please explain the term and why it is part of the bigger challenges in taming text? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you start to talk about those higher level parts of language, you know, you're looking at um, how do you incorporate world knowledge? How do you incorporate uh, all the, you know, all of the things that are left unsaid or unwritten? Um, how do you account for, you know, the fact that I know some jargon and you don't or vice versa, or how do you account for the generation gap between people? Right. You know, so I think, you know, trying to process and understand the meaning at that higher level can be, uh, really helpful for more effectively communicating as people. Right. I mean, if you just think about how many things go wrong in this world, by the fact that there's some gap or impedance mismatch or or noise in the channel, if you will, uh, between people, right? I mean, if you had ways to help smooth that over, help other people understand the, those gaps better, uh, it seems to me, and you know, it's obviously perhaps a little bit pie in the sky, but it seems to me that you have a real opportunity to help people, uh, you know, at the end of the day, get along better, right? But also understand each other better uh, and ultimately help the computers understand us better as well. Uh, and so, you know, I think there's some really hard challenges there. Uh, frankly, the, you know, one of the reasons that's in the uh, in that chapter of the untamed section is there's just now starting to be some, you know, work that is getting traction uh, and helping computers understand those layers. Um, and, and so you're starting to see some tools emerge there. I'm not intimately familiar with any of them, but I've, you know, essentially seen some discussions on them. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a really hard problem. I mean, just think about two humans trying to do it right. And how often we disagree, right? So if, if we can't agree, how would we expect a computer to agree when, when they're just doing essentially what we told them to do? Yeah. Everybody with a spouse can Tell. <laughs> exactly <laughs> or or kids or, or, yes. or any of those <laughs> totally right? totally and one big gap is actually produced by people talking in different languages and this is a challenge as well is, are there approaches to face that and how is this done Yeah, I mean, there's uh, that. That is, uh, it's one of the first problems I actually worked on in search, and it's it's kind of ironic because if you think about search as being a hard problem, cross language search and cross language understanding is even bigger, right? Uh, and so, you know, short of getting everybody to speak the language, which you know, the fact that you're in Germany and I'm here and we're both speaking English is 
you know, obviously there's some level of, of effort happening that way, you know, across the school systems and across the world. Uh, but, you know, also just being able to have better uh, machine translation, uh, all of those things are kind of underway and there's, there's efforts going on. Things like Google Translate, there's other uh, engines out there that do similar things. Uh, you know, so the kind of the approaches for this, uh, you know, obviously having people do it is really costly. Uh, it tends to be pretty highly accurate, but it doesn't scale very well. Uh, and so then you often look at how can computers supplement that. There are, you know, purely statistical approaches, which just essentially take in uh, two large bodies of parallel text. You know, if you think about it, like, for instance, the United Nations publishes all of its documents in, uh, you know, I don't even know how many different languages. And so those are effectively parallel texts, right? And so presumably you can line them up statistically speaking and figure out that, you know, this phrase in German uh, is so often correlates with a certain phrase in English, right? And so then over time, you're learning those statistical patterns. There are also rule-based patterns, you know, that say, if you ever see this kind of phrase in uh, or sentence type or sentence structure in German, then, uh, you know, that coincides with uh, this kind of phrase in English or in Spanish or fill in the blank. And so, you know, I mean, I think most systems kind of take a hybrid approach, which is they have some statistical models that they are grounded in and cover most of the language. And then they have rules that they overlay that deal with the exceptions, right? Uh, you know, because I think like, especially in English, we have the saying, you know, the exception that proves the rule, right? Um, There's so many exceptions and irregular verbs and, and things like that, that give computers headaches, if you will. <laughs> of course. Um, are there some scientific approaches on analyzing um, German as a language and to say then, okay, this is a proper noun in German and then being able to map this on Spanish or Japanese, which would be really hard. Are there some approaches in this area as well? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is where like, you know, like a Google Translate approach is just, hey, let me look at, you know, millions and millions of examples or thousands and thousands of examples, whatever it is. And so it's, it's, it's you know, I guess scientifically speaking, it's a statistical approach, if, if you will. Um, you know, there's obviously linguists and, and people who study, you know, do nothing but study a particular language or even uh, a sub part of the language all day, every day. Uh, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> but there are, thankfully, there are those people out there, uh, and you know, so you can go to things like the Association for Computational Linguistics and, and the like, uh, and and really dig into those. And so, yeah, there are people who are studying German, at, you know, as a language, and then of course they're they try to put it in the context of a common uh, language that you know all linguists are studying, and so you know we try to map the concepts across those uh, you know across the languages. But you know the, that's the that's just one of the cool things about languages too is there's often just some concepts that that don't translate. And you know I mean I think ultimately that's what makes us human, but also ultimately what makes it even more difficult for the likes of us who are trying to. Uh, you know, study this and, and uh, make the computer understand this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Getting a bit away from your book, um, I'd like to ask you if 
there is a feature or if there are features of Mahout, Solar, Lucene that are in inverted commas outstanding because you chose them in the in the book but um, even further um, and it's outstanding meaning without any equal feature in commercial projects or even Google is there something you can say okay use Solar because this and that and you won't find it anywhere else well, first off, I don't know what's going on in Google. So, you know, I, I, I obviously can't compare there. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think probably the most outstanding feature of all three of them is an intangible one, which is that they're community-developed open source. Uh, and so not only is there code that, you know, is held to a pretty high rigor, it may or may not be as good as, you know, Google or Bing or the like, um, but, you know, ultimately as an engineer, I can go look at it and I can dig into it and I can decide that, hey, if I don't like that particular piece, but I like all the rest of this, I can change it. Uh, and so there's a really powerful community around all of those things. And one of the best things I say about Mahout is, you know, regardless of whether you actually want to use our particular algorithms that we've implemented, there's a community there that is really interested in this stuff. And so if you just go and ask a question, chances are you'll find somebody who can help you. And, and sometimes we even tell them, hey, you know, go use some other tool because we think it's better. Uh, and so I think that community aspect and the openness is probably the, you know, without equal feature anywhere. Um, you know, just by, you know, kind of by definition, right? Um, as for, you know, the technical features, uh, it's been interesting in open source. I mean, I think, you know, for a long time, open source was all about commoditizing commercial features, whereas nowadays I think you're seeing a lot of innovation happening in, uh, in the open source. But again, you know, I mean, I don't study every patent. I don't study every commercial uh, project, so I don't know exactly uh, what's going on. I do know like in Lucene and Solar, we've done some really interesting things around uh, compression and, and term uh, representing the term dictionaries in an efficient way. We've been using uh, things like finite state autom automaton and the like in really interesting ways to help solve search problems. Um, I think we probably on the solar side, we can probably scale more economically than anybody else, meaning that the not only can we technically scale just to meet the demands of the amount of data you have, but you can actually afford to do that because uh, you're not paying exorbitant licensing fees. Uh, so, you know, you know, so like I said, I mean, a, a lot of this comes down to a mixture of really strong technical features with this incredible openness model that ultimately leads to the sum of the parts being more uh, than, you know, all, you know, or sorry, the, the, the whole of the parts is, is worth more than the sum of them. Right. Oh, okay, um, I see. Uh, uh, I'm totally butchering that saying for some reason, but uh, um, you, you know, so like, like it's, it's uh, the combination of them over any one individual feature is probably where I would say, you know, is really the thing that stands out. You said that, and I quote, we, are good at and we have been doing uh, good in this and that. Um, how did you actually get involved in developing for those projects and starting Apache Mahout? 
Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, you know, a little bit of a long story, but uh, it won't go. I'll, I'll save a little bit. Um, so with Lucene, uh, I literally walked in the door at Center for Natural Language Processing. Uh, you know, I'd been using open source for, you know, since, I don't know, 1999 or whatever. I walked in the door in 2004 uh, with some people that I worked for before, but we had actually used a proprietary engine uh, previously. And I was asked to implement an Arabic-English cross-language search engine. And I walked in the door and my boss said, we use Lucene, go figure it out. I said, okay. And we started, I started digging in and, and learning it. And as I was learning it, there were some things that I knew, knew I needed to implement in my application that uh, Lucene didn't do. And I got permission from my boss to implement those things, obviously, because I needed them. But not only did I get permission to implement them, I got permission to give them back to the community. And, and so if nothing else, maybe it perhaps it demystifies the open source process. But, you know, what happens is if you keep doing that, uh, you know, pretty soon the people who are responsible for the code base say, hey, you know, we trust you. Or they say, hey, I'm tired of reviewing your patches or your contributions. I trust what you're doing. I'm going to give you the rights to contribute those. And so that's how I got involved with Lucene. Uh, and then, you know, f interestingly enough, I think Mahout actually came out of Lucene. Um, you know, I had emailed, I think, uh, I forget actually when, it was 2006, 2007. I had emailed the dev list one day and said, hey, you know, this machine learning stuff is starting to heat up. I think it could be, you know, there's a lot of interesting uses for it in the search space. Wouldn't it be great if the Lucene project had, you know, a much broader scope beyond just search and actually took on and incorporated things like machine learning and natural language processing? And I sent that email and I think pretty much nobody responded. <laughs> um, and then a year later, uh, actually, this woman, Isabel Drost, actually a, a fellow German, uh, emailed me and said, hey, are you still interested in this? And I said, of course. And so her and I started emailing back and forth and, you know, we started to kind of expand the net of people who we thought in the Lucene community would be interested in this. And out of it uh, formed, uh, you know, essentially a small working group to kind of figure out what uh, what we should do. And then at that same time, Andrew Ning, uh, many people know from Coursera and the online machine learning course out of Stanford, uh, had published along with some of his students uh, a paper on 10 algorithms that you could implement, 10 machine learning algorithms that you could implement and MapReduce. And, you know, Hadoop was just starting to take off. And so we had read that paper and, and we said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we started a project at Apache that solved, you know, that implemented these algorithms, because these are kind of the tried and true machine learning algorithms. And uh, away we went. You know, the other need we had is a lot of the machine learning libraries at the time, we did not like their license on them. Um, you know, for better or for worse, we didn't feel they were licenses that are work would allow us to use. And so we wanted a, an Apache license project. We also wanted uh, better documentation and, and we wanted to build up a community around that code base. Uh, all things which, you know, the Apache Software Foundation are very good at. And so 
you know, we proposed this to the Lucene uh, Project Management Committee. They accepted. We started the project. And then you know, I think about a year or two later, we actually spun it out as its own top level project. And, you know, it is where it is now. There's, you know, pretty decent sized community there. There's a lot of interesting development work going on. And, you know, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. Can you think of some topics um, that are actually uh, open right now and you need help and maybe our listeners can um, step in and, and help you out? Uh, on the on the Mahout side, I mean, I think right now, you know, what's happening in the community there, and, and to be honest, I'm, I'm not as in, uh, involved in Mahout as I used to be, frankly, but, uh, you know, I still do try to stay involved. Uh, you know, right now we're in the process of, You know, a lot of the algorithms that we did originally were based off of Hadoop MapReduce. Um, these algorithms are iterative by nature, and in you know the old way of doing MapReduce, they, that was very expensive. So there's been a real push as of late towards uh, distributed approaches that aren't as iterative in nature, or at least better at dealing with iterative uh, algorithms. So things like Spark. Uh, if you're familiar with that project and the like. Um, we also have some effort underway in terms of just bringing in new uh, approaches and calculations. Um, you know, so there's, if you're really hardcore, you know, really good programmer, really good at math, et cetera, you can really get into the algorithms at a very deep level. And that's one way you can help on Mahout. Uh, but frankly, there's also just a, a real need for, People who can uh, do documentation, who can fix bugs, who can uh, explain use cases, who can write examples, uh, who can make it easier for for people to get data in and out of the uh, out of the system. And so, you know, there's lots of different ways you can contribute on Mahout. Same goes for Lucene and Solar. Um, you know, there's there's obviously core algorithms that are really interesting. Uh, and, and often require, you know, pretty deep knowledge around performance and quality. But there's just also a whole lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of bugs and use cases and examples and documentation. And so, you know, one of the things I think I often find people will ask me, how do I contribute to open source? And, and they have some bit of trepidation around it. And, you know, I really encourage them to just start with something small and simple get their feet wet, you know, start asking questions, start answering questions. And then as you grow with the system, you'll, you'll feel more and more comfortable with it. And, and ultimately that can be a real boon to your, your career and, and your, uh, your, your skills as a programmer. Okay. So listeners, you're encouraged to go to the website of Mahout and Solar and Lucene and start working on it. Yeah, and just ask on the mailing list too. Hey, you know, I've got some spare time. Where can I help out? You know, go. I think all of those pages, uh, all of those websites have a how to contribute page on them. So if you just Google solar, how to contribute or Mahout, how to contribute, you know, chances are the first link will be a page that says, hey, here's how you check out the code. Here's how you create Uh, patches or pull requests, or here's where we keep our documentation. Here's what we expect of you from unit tests. And so you can get uh, lots of information that way. And, and it, it really isn't as, as scary as it sometimes sounds. <laughs> All right. Um, my last question is, um, 
did we forget something? And um, while well, we, we spoke about the second edition of your book, is there something else in the pipeline? Are you speaking at conferences in the future? Some, If people want to hear from you, uh, hear you talk, um, see your work, where can they meet and how can they contact you? Yeah, the hardest question of them all, what didn't you ask? <laughs> uh, you know, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of good things. I mean, I think looking at the upcoming edition, we're going to add in some new and interesting topics like sentiment analysis, summarization, uh, visualization of text. So there's some really interesting things coming up. Yes, very interesting topics, which is why I'm really looking forward to reading the second edition. All right. Since we reached the end of our episode, I want to say thanks for being on the show again and talking about your book, Taming Text. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Tobias. Glad to be here again. In addition to Grant, I want to thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. We want to know what you think about this show and how we can improve. There are various ways of telling us. You can go to iTunes or our website and write a review of this episode or leave general comments and I would encourage you to doing so. This is Tobias Cards for Software Engineering Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slash dot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.